Brian, for leading us in that. If you have your Bibles, take them and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 22. We'll be looking at uh, that passage this morning. Uh, it is my joy to be able to be here in the, the pulpit and fill the pulpit this morning. I uh, always look forward to uh, this opportunity, but uh, it seems that whenever I preach, uh, I always get some interesting comments uh, before I get in the pulpit. Uh, this morning, one of the kids who went to camp with me said, you talk a long time. <laughs> so maybe we can go shorter or shortish. Then I had uh, one of the youth kind of bounce that, that out by saying, uh, I don't have to work this afternoon, so you can go as long as you want. And, uh, and I'm assuming that with age comes wisdom. And, and so we may go with the, uh, the wisdom of the, of the older students uh, uh, this morning, but uh, we won't be here past two or three this afternoon, I promise. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Uh, we're going to be looking this morning at a passage that you're probably very familiar with. Uh, it's the passage in which Jesus is praying uh, in the garden. And more than likely, this is a passage that you have run across many times in your life, that you've read many times, that you've heard many times, uh, dealt with a lot around the time of Easter. And so as we turn to this passage, Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 39, we're going to read this in just a moment. Uh, this, this is just before Jesus goes out and is arrested and is tried and is crucified. This, this is the last week of Jesus' life. He's, he's been in Jerusalem. He's been preaching, he's been teaching while he's been there. He's been in the synagogue, and while he's, while he's there, he has come to the time of Passover. They've had the Passover meal together, uh, the, uh, the Last Supper uh, meal that we say uh, with the disciples. And after they've had that Last Supper, they go out, and he goes out to pray. And this is the passage uh, that we come to right now. But before we jump into this, I, I want to caution us for a moment. I think a lot of times when we come to a passage that we're really familiar with, that we've read a lot of times, it's easy for us to kind of, uh, kind of phase out when we come to it. When we come to a passage that we've read a lot, when we start to read it again, kind of our eyes just kind of go over the words and kind of skim down to, it, to the bottom because we know what happens. And we have a passage that we've heard a lot of times. It's easy for us when we start hearing that passage for our eyes to kind of glaze over and to start thinking about lunch. Well, lunch is not far away, so I promise you, we will get done eventually. Don't glaze over as we go through this passage that we've read many times before. Because what I want you to see this morning is that we're going to see a passage that shows perhaps one of the greatest pictures of radical abandonment to the purpose of God. And we see this amazing picture into the heart of Christ right before he goes to be tried, beaten, and crucified. This is a picture that we see of God-centeredness, God-loving heart, self-denial, perhaps greater than anything that we see in all the rest of Scripture. So hang with me as we work through this passage Listen to this. Listen closely as we read Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 39. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at that place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. 
Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from the prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. We're getting a glimpse here. This passage, we're getting a glimpse into the very heart of Christ as he goes and does battle right before he goes to the cross. We're invited into a very private picture here. There's only three disciples who are here, and we're told in another passage that there are stones thrown away from Jesus. So we're getting to see in this very private moment right before he goes to the cross, and we're getting to see the suffering that he goes through right before that experience. So this is a powerful picture that we're seeing this morning. As we study this passage, I want us to see two things. First of all, I want you to see that, that while in this garden, our Savior suffered. He suffered. Then I also want us to see later on that in the midst of this suffering, our Savior submitted. He submitted to the Father's will. So as we look here at Jesus in the garden, in this amazing, astounding picture that's presented to us in this passage, we're going to see that Jesus Christ suffered perhaps greater than anything we could ever imagine. He's in agony. But I want you to notice what's here and maybe what's not here. Jesus in this garden, there's no one with him. There's no one threatening him. There's no one standing there getting ready to beat him. There are no nails that are being driven in his hands right then and in his feet. There's no one beating him or striking him. Why is it that he is going through such intense agony right here in this garden? That's the question I want us to think about as we go through this, as we consider why our Savior uh, suffered. Now, before we, before we dive into Luke, I want us to flip over uh, to the book of Matthew. So take your Bibles, flip over to uh, Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, starting at verse 36. Uh, this, is, this is the same passage or the same event being recorded. Now you remember that uh, the gospel writers are writing from perhaps different perspectives. If you and I saw the same event, I would emphasize maybe some other details than you would. And so the gospel writers do the exact same thing. One gospel writer will emphasize this one aspect of the event. Another gospel writer will emphasize another aspect of the event. And so when, if we want to get a full picture of any particular event from Jesus' life, it's best to look at several of these gospel accounts together. And so I want us to look at Matthew because he'll help us round out this picture of Jesus praying there in the garden. And what Matthew does, he almost gives us like a, a fuller picture. Luke's almost like a snapshot, just a quick glimpse of this is what happened. Matthew gives us some more details. He goes into a little more depth explaining what Jesus is doing, what happens here in the garden. So listen to, listen to what it says here in Luke, or Matthew chapter 26, starting at, at verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. This is, this is Matthew giving us more details. Remember that Luke said it's just the Mount of Olives? Well, Matthew's giving us more details. He's saying it's not just on the Mount of Olives, but this place called the Garden of Gethsemane that's on the Mount of Olives. And so he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and he began to be grieved and distressed. Now, from this point on in the passage, I want you to notice what it says about Jesus' suffering. 
I want you to notice the depiction that's given here in this. It says that he was grieved and distressed. Verse 38, then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Jesus is at such a point that he says that he is so grieved that his soul is so torn up inside him that he is at the point of physical death. I don't think he is using hyperbole here. I don't think he's exaggerating what's going on. I think that Jesus really is at the point where that he is suffering and struggling so much that his body just cannot take it anymore, that he is physically at the point where nothing more can be done, where he is about to die from the agony he's experiencing. And so we see in Matthew, these three times over, Jesus repeats this same prayer to the Father. It's verse 39. He went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And not as I will, but as you will. Three times, three times Jesus is there in the garden in agony to the point of death and prays, please, Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. All right, now let's flip back to Matthew, or to, to Luke. Flip back to Luke, Luke chapter 22. Luke's gonna help us round out this picture. He gives us a few more things that Matthew doesn't say. Luke chapter 2, look down right after Jesus prays in verse 42 about this cup passing from him. What happens next? You notice there that an angel comes to strengthen Christ. Now, there's only two times in all of Scripture, in all the Gospels, that this is recorded, that an angel comes to strengthen Jesus. And the first time is when Jesus is being tempted out in the wilderness. An angel comes to strengthen him while he's going through that temptation. The other time is right here, right before he goes to be upon the cross. Both times, intense, intense temptation coming from Satan. We'll see that a little bit more in a minute, but an angel comes to strengthen him. We don't know exactly what that angel does, but we know because of the agony that Christ is going through, he is strengthened by an angel. This last picture we get here, I want you to really look close at this last picture that we have in this passage in verse 44. Being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. His sweat became as drops of blood. Now, some people, some people debate about what, what's going on right here. Some people say, well, it, well, Luke's just saying that it just appeared like it was blood. I, I don't think that's the case. I think Luke is saying here that Jesus was in such agony, that his soul was in such agony, suffering, that he was going through such intense things in his mind, in his very soul, that what he was doing, his body could no longer take it anymore, that his sweat glands started pouring forth blood as he was dripping sweat, thinking about what was coming before him. Can you see that picture? Can you see the intensity of the scene that's going on? Can you, can you even begin to imagine what kind of anguish it takes to begin sweating blood. You know, it's one thing to be so stressed and anxious about something that you start begin sweating. It's quite another when your body just can't even take it anymore. 
and your blood vessels begin to burst and sweat pours out as, as blood. That, that's, that's what's going on right here in the life of Jesus uh, in the garden. Now, I want us to stop for just a minute. Before we keep going on this, I want us to stop. Jesus knew, obviously, what was coming up. He knew that crucifixion was just around the corner for him, just in a few short hours. Now, crucifixion was a common thing during that time. Anybody who lived in the Roman Empire would have known what crucifixion was. They would have known that they were hung on a cross and they're laid out for everybody to see and they may hang on that cross for days at a time. And this is something that a lot of later Christians experienced. The, the disciples, uh, later believers that went through this. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look at a couple of examples of two men who faced losing their life. One who was crucified, one who was, who was burned. And I want us to see, how did these men respond? How does their response to knowing that they were getting ready to die a horrible death, how does that compare to Jesus and how he responded when he knew that cross was around the corner? One of these guys was by the name of Andrew. He's one of the disciples. Remember, Andrew was the brother of Peter. And as Andrew was, uh, was aging, his brother Peter was killed. He, he was, uh, as tradition tells us, he was crucified upside down. And there were thousands of, of Christians being persecuted all around the, the Roman Empire. The Roman Senate had actually set up an edict and said it is lawful, it is legal to persecute Christians uh, for their faith. And Andrew had been ministering in this town uh, called Patras. And as Andrew was ministering in this town, he was seeing Christians uh, growing in their faith and you're seeing unbelievers come to know Christ and so he went to the Roman governor of that town to plead his case now you're talking about a gutsy move here he's is now legal to be persecuted for being a Christian and Andrew goes up to the governor to plead his case saying please stop persecuting my brothers and sisters in Christ in this city well when he goes to this uh, to this Roman governor he began talking to him and asking, pleading his case. And the Roman governor asked him, said, so are you, are you a part of this heretical group that follows after Christ? And Andrew said, well, yes, I am. I'm definitely a part of that group. And so the Roman governor looked at him and said, now if you continue what you're doing, you will have the death penalty put upon you and you will be killed. You will be crucified. And then Andrew says this, listen to this, this is an amazing statement. Hear what he says. If I were afraid of the death of the cross, I would not have preached about the majesty, the honor, and the glory of the cross. Now he is standing in front of the man who has his life in his hands. And he says, if I were afraid of you, if I were afraid of the cross, I wouldn't be preaching the cross right now. That is a bold statement of faith. Man, that is good stuff. And so right then and there, the Roman governor says, all right, so be it, you will be crucified. And now as, as Andrew is getting ready to be crucified, he is being led arm in arm by the Roman centurions, the guards, taking him to the place where he's going to be crucified. And he can actually see the cross ahead on a hill in front of him. And as he gets closer to it where he can see it, he says, O cross most welcome and long looked for, with a willing mind, I joyfully come to you, being the disciple of him who hung on you. Man, that is faith 
As he gets closer, he draws nearer to the point where he can see it, and he's getting closer and knows it's coming. He says, the nearer I come to the cross, the nearer I come to God. And the farther I am from the cross, the farther I remain from God. He was hung on the cross, crucified, stayed there for three days before he died. That was his response when he knew the cross was coming. Another man that we'll look at is a man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was the last living link to the apostles. He was a student under John and, and when, he was, when he was young. He had learned from John. At the time that he was 86 years old, he was led into, the, uh, to, into a Roman arena. And when he was there in the Roman arena, there were thousands, thousands of people gathered in that Roman arena screaming out, looking forward to the show that was going to come of him being killed. And as he was led into the arena, he got out into the middle, and there was a, a Roman leader standing there waiting for him uh, in that, uh, in that uh, arena. And th- this leader looked at him, gave him one last chance to save his life. And he says, if you will swear by Caesar that Caesar alone is Lord, then your life will be spared and you will leave this place a free man. Polycarp looked at him and said, for 86 years, my God has been faithful to me and I have served him. How can I now blaspheme my Lord? So the Roman leader took him and they threatened him with wild beasts that would eat him alive. When that didn't work, they took him and put him before a fire so that he would be burned alive. And as they strapped him, to the wood placed him there on the wood Polycarp said this you threaten me with a fire which will burn for an hour and will then go out but you are ignorant of the fire of the future judgment of God reserved for the everlasting torment of the ungodly well why do you delay bring on the beast or the fire or whatever you choose you shall not move me to deny Christ my Lord and Savior and right as the fire was being lit he said oh father I thank you that you have called me to this day and hour and have counted me worthy to receive a place among the number of holy martyrs man Talk about response of a man who said, my life is not my own. I'm going to lay it down. It's all about you, not your will, but not my will, but your will be done. Bring it on. I'm thankful I'm counted worthy to be among those who have their life taken away for the sake of the gospel. That is amazing statement that these men make and they're facing death. Now, when we look at them, we, we don't see them weeping in tears. We don't, we don't see them in agony. We don't see them sweating blood. We don't see them just crying out, let this, let this pass from me. We see them almost joyfully looking forward to, bring it on, I look forward to the cross that I may be counted worthy to die the same way that my Savior did. What's going on here? Do these men have something else that Christ doesn't have? Why are they just joyfully looking forward to it when Christ is in such agony, suffering there, praying in the garden? Why is that? Let me, let me answer that by maybe asking a question. Do we really think that it's the thought of the physical suffering of the cross that Christ is agonizing over do we really think that our savior 
the Son of God, the living God, can be moved and shaken by the thought of nails or a crown of thorns or a whip is not the case. Our God is not shaken and in agony over the thought of what men could do to him. Here's what our Savior was in agony for. Our Savior was suffering there in the garden because he knew what was going to be poured out upon him, not the beating of the Romans' guards, but that he was going to have the full wrath of God poured out upon him for sin. And that's why our Savior was suffering there in the garden because he knew it. He says, let this cup pass from me. That image of a cup in the Old Testament is often associated with the cup of God's wrath, the judgment that God is going to pour out on those who do not submit to him. And Jesus knows that is the cup that he is getting ready to experience, the Holy One of God, the Son of the living God, perfect in all he is, 100% holy, 100% righteous. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, says that he became sin who knew no sin. The one that was 100% holy was getting ready to have sin of believers, of those who would know him, laid upon him. The Holy One of God experiencing that, and that he would have the fullness of the wrath of God laid out upon him. So this, this is why he's in agony. And you know what? You and I can't even begin to understand this. We, we can't even begin to conceptualize in our mind what it means to be under the wrath of God. Holy, holy, holy God. To experience the blazing, unending, unquenchable, 100% right wrath of holy living God only the son knows the reality of that and he knew that was coming so yes our savior suffered there in the garden more than you and I could ever understand because there was a war being waged right then would he choose the command of the father or the comfort of his life. And Satan was crying out to him, you're holy, don't take that sin upon you. You're a God, you don't need to do this. As Christ said, and he cried out, not my will, but your will be done. And I think that for us today, this prayer of Jesus is really where the rubber hits the road. We, we see that our Savior suffered now we see that our Savior submitted. He submitted to the will of the Father. And so the question that we have to bring before ourselves, is this what we are going to do? Are we going to pray, not my will, but your will be done? You see, what Jesus does here is the exact opposite of everything our culture screams at us. 100% opposite. Our culture screams at us to live for yourself, enjoy everything that you can, gain as much for yourself, make sure that you live in, in ease and safety and comfort and make sure that there is no danger to your life. That's what our culture screams at us 100% of the time. And Jesus here in the garden screams out, that is not, that is not the life of a disciple. 
Jesus cries out here, his example cries out against what I would call the American dream. The American dream was a phrase that was coined uh, back in 1930s by a, guy, uh, by a guy by the name of James Adams. And he spoke of it as a dream in which every man and every woman can attain anything they want and they can be recognized by others for everything that they have achieved. And, and this idea has, has kind of grown and morphed in, into what we have today that, that says that, that you should live for whatever you can get. If you can get more for yourself, then you should do it. If you can have a, a life of greater ease, then you should go for it. If you can have a life of greater comfort, then you should go for it. Whatever you can do to have more for yourself, that's what you should do because you can do it. You have the ability. You can attain to bigger and greater things. And the life of Christ right here in the garden screams out, that is not the case for disciples, for those who want to follow after the Father. Those that want to follow after the Father don't say, may I have more for myself. They say, may I lay down more of myself for the cause of Christ and the gospel. Would Jesus choose comfort or the command of the Father? Would he live for his own needs or would he submit to the Father's will no matter what the cost? In the face of suffering that you and I cannot imagine, he said, not my will, but yours be done. And here's the thing, you and I need to hear this. We need to hear Jesus crying out in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. So here's the thing, none of us None of us are immune from the effects of this world. None of us are immune from the culture crying out to us, live more for yourself, desire more for yourself. Be sure that you live for your comfort and make sure that your life is as greatest ease as possible. None of us are immune from that. And I tell you, we have stood at the well of the American dream and we have drunk deeply from it. And I know, I don't know your heart. I know my heart. I know my heart and I see the temptations in my heart and I see what my heart subtly cries out to me and tries to tell me that, that I need to live and focus on myself. I see how my heart subtly says, just, just try and have it easy. Just, just get, get by, just focus on what you need to do each day and don't, you don't have to think about much else gain more for yourself. If you can have an easier, longer, better life, then, then just go for it. I don't know if you struggle with the same things that I do, but what I know is what Scripture says. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful and it's desperately wicked, and I know that my heart is deceitful, and it desires to turn me from following after Christ to following after my own way. And I, and I guess, and I know from what Scripture says that your heart's the same condition. And so what we see with Jesus here in the garden is the antidote to what we are being told every day to live for ourselves. This prayer of Christ is the antidote to that kind of thinking, that kind of life where Jesus says, not my will but your will be done. This needs to be our prayer because we are so bombarded with think 
for yourself and love yourself. And he says, don't love yourself. Love God above all things and see your life as radically abandoned to his purpose, no matter what the cost may be. This is the picture of discipleship that should be for each and every one of us. And now I don't know. Here, here's the thing. I don't know exactly what this looks like in, in all our lives. I, I can't say specifically what it's going to mean for, for you to say, not my will, but your will be done. I don't even know exactly what it's going to look like in my life day by day to say, not my will, but your will be done. But there are a few things that I know from Scripture that this is what it's going to mean. So there's just a few things. So listen with me, just a few things. Uh, I, I know that if we say, not my will, but your will be done, that it's going to mean that we have to die to ourselves. It's going to mean that we have to stop thinking, what do I want? And we start, have to start asking ourselves, what is it that God wants? And nothing in our lives is exempt from this question and asking this. God, every facet of my life, every single thing in my life, not about what I want, but what is it that you want, God? Jen and I were just on the way over here talking about this uh, and, and what it means to, uh, to lay it all down and say, not my will, but your will be done. It's talking about, well, what do we do with it, this particular area of our life how do we say that about our life is not about what I want with that but what God wants with that and we have to examine our life in every single facet and say nothing is exempt from what God desires this is the attitude that Paul had when he when he said that I'm crucified with Christ is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me in Galatians 2 20 it's exactly what what Todd was saying when he read that passage in Philippians 3 when Paul says Whatever things were gained to me, these things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything, everything that I have, everything in my life, I count it as lost. And this is what he goes on later and says, I count it as lost, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I count everything as a loss to be privileged to have the opportunity to possibly suffer for the sake of my Savior. That is a picture of a disciple who said, not my will, but your will be done. I have to be honest with you. This, this is not a call to an easy life. The idea that going around, that you, you come to Christ and you get an easy life is absolutely false. Is 100% an abomination of what Scripture says about being a disciple of the Lord. Jesus said, count the cost before you come follow me because it may cost you every single thing. In fact, he says, you cannot be my disciple unless you give up everything that you have. This is the picture of what it means to be a follower after Christ. And so here's the thing. It's going to cause sacrifice. Being a disciple won't just possibly cause sacrifice for us. It will undoubtedly, because Jesus says that if you're a disciple, it will require sacrifice from you. But here's the thing. When we stare at the face of our Savior there in the garden and the sweat is pouring down as blood, then it really doesn't become sacrifice anymore. When we stare in the face of our Savior who laid it all down, who took the wrath of God upon himself, we see that it's not really sacrifice for me to sacrifice some of my wealth. Or it's not sacrifice for me to give up some of my comfort because I look and see what he did and the joy of what it is to know him is not sacrifice. Jim Elliott said very succinctly, and I think it's a great quote, that uh, he is no fool 
who, cannot, who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. And that has to be our attitude because there's nothing in this world that we might have for maybe a brief 80 years that counts, that even comes close to surpassing greatness of knowing Christ and standing before him saying, I give it all for the sake of you and for your glory. That's laying it down. And so I, I, I have no clue what in your life it might look like to sacrifice for the sake of Christ and for his purpose in your life. No clue whatsoever. But I ask you to just consider what that might mean in your life. So, so we know that, that if we're going to follow after Christ, we're going to say it's not my will, but your will be done. It, it, it's going to require these things. And maybe a lot more. I don't know. I don't know what God may do in each of our lives. And, so, and there's some things that it, that it may require in our lives. It, it may, and I, I would say more like probably, require us to give up some of our comfort. We have been given a task that is global in scope and is urgent in need. We've been given a task that's global in scope and urgent in need. Right now, by even, even the most generous estimates, there are uh, 4.5 billion people in this world who do not know Christ. A billion of those have, have never even had the opportunity of hearing Christ. And right now, there are a billion people in the world who have no access to clean water. And there are something like 30,000 uh, people dying every single day due to, uh, to lack of access to clean water and, and various things like this. And, and Christ has given us the command to go and make disciples of all nations. Christ has given us the command that if you are my follower, you will care for those in need. And so we have this command that we have been given in scripture that says that you are to make sure the gospel goes out and you're to make sure that those in need are cared for. So we have, when we have this kind of situation where there are billions of people dying without even the knowledge the knowledge that there is a gospel, then we have a task that is global and we have a task that is urgent. If we have a task like that and we've been given a command by God that we are to be going out and making disciples of all nations, then we do not have time just to focus on our own comfort and live for our own satisfaction, our own desires, our own comfort. It, it may, it may require us to step out of our comfort zone, to give up some of our comfort. One of the things that, that we're doing right now is taking the gospel and trying to start uh, Bible studies in, in two low-income housing areas here in Somerset, Hopeway and Colonial Village. And that may require, if you're involved in that, stepping out of your comfort zone and being involved with some people that maybe you have not been involved with before. Going to Peru may require you to give up something that you have been accustomed to and you really like, like a comfortable bed. It may require you to endure some really creepy crawly bugs that bite you and you don't know exactly what they are. It may require you to just eat peanut butter and jelly while you're out on the field because there's nothing else really safe for you to eat. It may require you to bathe in some water that you really don't think is all that safe. But when we stand and we look at the face of Christ there in the Garden of Gethsemane with him pouring forth blood and sweat and all this happening and he cries out, not my will but yours. How can we possibly say I won't go because it might make me uncomfortable? We can't. We can't. And so I would challenge you, if you are physically able, consider, think about going to Peru or, or, or some other foreign area, maybe just for one week, just, just for one week. See what God might do and open your heart to, to a love for the nations. 
Parents, are you instilling a, a love for the nations in your children? Are you raising them with the possibility, teaching them the possibility that as a believer, if you're a believer, you have a global task? And so are you raising them in such a way to talk to them and say that God may have a global plan for you to live in a different culture for the rest of your life? Are you raising them, teaching them, saying that there is a need out there and we have to be involved in that need? Parents, take something like Operation World by a guy by the name of Patrick Johnstone and pray with your kids through all these different countries that, that don't know Christ. Raise them so that they are passionate for the nations. Post pictures around your house of different nations that give stats that these people groups are lost. Let's pray for them every time we walk by the refrigerator. You know, things like that, that, that we're instilling that kind of global purpose. So if we, if we say, not my will, but mine, it, it, it may mean giving up some comfort. If we say, not my will, but your will be done, it may, it may more, more likely, probably, will cause us to reevaluate how we look at our plans for the future. And I want, I want to list out a little challenge here. Our current wisdom in this world, uh, in America today, says that you should work uh, for several years as hard as you can and then take as much time as you can to live for your own comfort and ease at the end of your life. What if we flipped that upside down? What if Christians flipped that upside down and said, and said something more like, what if I work as hard as I can for however many years that I need to, I raise my kids and, and have them grown, and then I use whatever talents or abilities or whatever I have for the rest of my life and use that to, to see a global impact. And so if you have skills with building, what, what if you saw the last years of your life as being used of going to help out in disaster areas? Maybe not full-time, but you see that as, as part of your calling for the last 30 years of life, however long you have that you can still do the hammering before you, you know, your fingers won't do it anymore. Well, what if, what if, ladies, if you saw that your skill as just being a godly mother and you were able to go to some of these, these housing projects and say, I'm going to devote myself to teaching some of these mothers there who really have no clue what it means to care for your child and say, here, I'm going to step beside you and show you what it means to be, to be a mother and how to care for your child or whatever it might be. If you have business skills, what if you said, I'm going to use the last part of my life to go train some business leaders in some of these other countries and teach them how to do basic business practices and you use that as an avenue for sharing the gospel. I read a, a great story recently about a, a couple. They're in their 70s and, and they retired and they decided they were going to do disaster relief. And, and so they're, they're gone all the time. They're going back and forth to these different areas here in the United States and other countries, and they're going uh, to do disaster relief in these different areas. And, and this guy's wife went with him all the time except for one trip, one trip that she didn't go on because she said she didn't really feel comfortable sleeping under their truck in the middle of a war zone, but her husband went ahead and did it. I mean, man, talk about a picture of just laying it down. Not my will, but your will be done. There's, there's a guy I've got to read, and we're drawing to a close, got to read his quote. His, his name is C.T. Studd, uh, and his last name kind of says it all. I mean, he's just kind of in your face, just lays it out, no holds barred. Now, I want you to hear what he says. He was a cricket player in the late 1800s, and I don't know what, really what cricket is. I know it's British, uh, but he did that in the late 1800s. And he uh, felt called into the pastor. So he was a pastor for several years, and toward the end of his ministry, 
he decided that retirement really was an option for him. He was about 50 years old. And he decided that he was going to spend the rest of his life on the mission field in Sudan. And he had countless people telling him, this isn't wise. You're, you're, you're getting up in years. And, of course, 50 then is different than 50 now. So uh, he, was, he was getting a little older. And, and people said, so don't, you know, don't get mad at me and say, you said I was old. <coughs> I did not. Uh, so, he would, so he had all these people telling him, don't go do that. It is reckless. It doesn't make sense. You've given your life for the gospel. Why go do more? But he said, it's not going to be. And I want you to listen to his quote. And he doesn't hold anything back. And I hope this will be our attitude. Too long have we been waiting for one another to begin. The time for waiting is past. Should such men as we fear, listen, listen to this, before the whole world, I before the sleepy lukewarm, faithless, namby-pamby Christian world, we will dare to trust our God and we will do it with his, unjoy, his joy unspeakable singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only in our God than live trusting in man. And when we come to this position, the battle is already won and the end of the glorious campaign is in sight. We will have the real holiness of God, not the sickly stuff of talk and dainty words and pretty thoughts. We will have a masculine holiness, one of daring faith and works for Jesus Christ. Will we have that kind of attitude? Will we see the entirety of our lives for that? I would count it a joy if I can live to 80 years old and die in some hole somewhere in South America or Africa. Do we have that desire for it all to be laid down? That may not mean you go overseas for the rest of your life, but I want us to see that when we say, not my will, but your will be done, everything's on the table. It's whatever God says. No holds barred, nothing held back. That's what we need to be, radical abandonment for the cause of Christ, for his glory here and throughout the nations. So we need to see the picture of Christ here in the garden. We need to look at his face. A couple things need to stand out to us. First, the wrath of God is real. If you have not trusted in Christ for salvation, there is an eternal wrath that will be poured out on you forever. And there is no getting out of it. So if that is you, trust in Christ. Turn from your sins and call upon him. He will save you. And for those of us who have done that, those of us who have done that, we need to pray, not my will, but your will be done. And say, I'm not holding anything back. Whatever it is, I'll do. And so will you pray that this week? I don't know what it is that God might lead you to do. But not my will. Your be, will be done. Let's pray. God, I, I just simply pray uh, the prayer of Christ there. Not my will, but your will be done. And I ask that you will work in my heart to make that a reality and let me hold nothing back. I pray that you'll work that in all our hearts to hold nothing back. Moving our hearts however you desire, because we don't want it to be about us, we want it to be about you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.